We've all heard of the phrase, scream if you want to go faster, but what if you want to go faster without screaming? Tonight, we'll talk about how. Speaking of going faster, if you want to accelerate your product management career, why not check out My Mentor Path, a new free mentoring platform that enables you to get the support you need to further your career. You can head over to mymentorpath.com, sign up as a mentor, a mentee, or both. Mentoring can be an incredibly high leverage activity for both the mentors and the mentees, so why not give it a try? Check out the show notes for more details. All right, so moving faster. Everyone says they want to do it, but there's always something slowing us down, like an anchor around our feet. But how can we take off the shackles and move forward with confidence? If you want to find out all about that, stick with us on One Night in Products. So my guest tonight is Ed Biden. Ed's a longtime product manager, company founder, and fractional CPO who says he's passionate about political reform and once sailed across the Atlantic before Greta Thunberg made it cool. I want to tell Donald Trump now. Ed's a former Christmas tree delivery man who's now helping product managers around the world wrap tinsel and sparkly lights around their roadmaps and getting them set up for the festivities of product management with his new startup Hustle Badger and says that product teams need to get used to executing fast. I don't know what you mean, Ed. Surely one release a year is just fine, right? Anyway, how are you doing tonight, Ed? I'm doing really well, thanks, Jason. How are you? Good, good. It's good to have you here. All right. So as ever, first things first, you are the founder of Hustle Badger. And the word hustle is already making me think of late night coding sessions, 5am ice showers and threads and threads of motivational advice. So try and take me down a peg or two. What does Hustle Badger do? So we help product managers achieve their full potential. We provide templates, case studies and how-to guides. And basically, we've got a playbook for every situation you're likely to find yourself in. Now, every situation is a bit of a bold claim because I'm certainly aware, and I'm sure you are from some of the work that you've done, some of the situations that product managers can find themselves in. Can you really stand behind the phrase, any situation? Well, that's aspirational, I should say. (laughs) Uh, We're working towards it. We're working towards it. But we're producing a playbook every week, and all of those playbooks go into our wiki. And so very quickly, we're kind of filling out all the main use cases you've got and things that you would want help for or think, how does someone else do this? Then we've got something for you to get started with. But it is fair to say that there are quite a lot of resources and educational programs and MBAs and mini MBAs and certificates and lovely courses and everything all out there, all that good stuff where people can try and do some of that stuff already and kind of better themselves and become the best PMs that they can be. So what's the difference between Hustle Badger and all of that? And, and I guess by extension, why is Hustle Badger's approach better? Yeah. So when I looked at the education space, then what I could see was there was some fantastic training at the top end of the market. And you've got people like Product School and Reforge and so on, like doing like really fantastic cohort-based courses. But they're expensive. You're talking like upwards Oh, of, don't tell Carlos. <laughs> upwards of, you know, a thousand pounds per person to go and do that. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got a lot of great free materials, podcasts, articles, you know, there's, there's lots of like great learning to be had out there for, for, for free, but there's very little in the middle, right? And I wanted to provide the kind of consistency and quality that you get with a premium course, but do that at a price point that people could afford to pay for themselves and didn't have to rely on their companies buying for them. And I also had this strong belief that courses were great because they're intensive. 
but the best learning happens on the job and it's integrated with what you're doing now. So I wanted to create these formats where you could basically kind of like take a template or take a how-to guide and you could apply it to what you were doing right now because that's when learning really sticks. Yeah, I agree with some of that. And I think it kind of chimes with some of the stuff that I've tried to do in previous jobs as well. But I guess one of the questions that naturally springs from that is if we're saying that there's a bunch of expensive courses out there that I guess you're somewhat competing with and trying to provide as much value as, then how can you do that? Because either these people are charging way too much money and, you know, all sitting there in their yachts, or it just costs a lot of money to do this stuff. And you need a certain amount of money to get the content or get the guides or whatever up to scratch. So how are you able to outmaneuver them aside from being new and startup-y? Like how are you able to outmaneuver them and still have the quality that you'd need to have to get actually good results out of it? Yeah, that's a fair challenge. So a lot of those premium courses that you're looking at, what you're actually paying for is the instructor's time. And whether that's face-to-face or whether that's like on a call and it's it's you know synchronous and cohort-based, you've still got some really experienced people who are able to give you very tailored feedback. And that is tremendously valuable, but it's also very expensive because those people, you know, you need to, to pay for on an ongoing basis. And what we're doing to bring the cost down is basically take the knowledge from those kinds of people, but document it, record it down once. So yes, you're not going to get a tailored response to to your particular like question, but most people like they they would take an eighty percent cheaper product to get you know eighty percent of the value. You're not going to get Chat GPT to start reading people's answers out then, maybe. <laughs> I'm not though. <no. laughs> but that's an interesting point though around the production of the content because it could be that it's just you and your team sitting there, kind of slaving away over a typewriter, coming up with as much content as possible and trying to bring your own spin on things and using your own experience to try and inspire people, educate people. But it sounds like what you're doing is maybe a bit of that, but also working with other people, getting their content in, maybe layering the metadata and the tech on top to to help to surface that to people. Is that a fair shout or are you doing more of the former than the latter? Yeah, I think yeah, there, there's there's layers to this, to Tassel Badger as a, as a plan, right? So, so where we've started is with me writing a lot of the content and putting that online and it's fairly static right admittedly it's kind of like it's templates how-to guides that you you download and you and you go with and we've started there because i honestly i was producing a lot of this stuff for my teams when i've been in cpo roles and vp product roles and it's been a tremendous help to those teams and i started thinking okay well maybe there's a broader market for this stuff right so that's not the be all and end all of hustle badger you know, there's really exciting stuff that is going on with AI. So, you know, it'd be great if you could have a coach that you could ask questions for and it would retrieve the right templates, the right kind of sound bites and bits of advice that you need in that moment, even from a, you know, kind of a pool of, of kind of pre-recorded or, or pre-documented advice. And I think that's one direction that, you know, the latest advances in AI is going to take us is like, who owns those really high quality data sets or banks of advice? And then what are the ways that you can access them? Because it's it's going to be completely different, right? But certainly something that I'm really focused on now is finding other really talented operators and capturing their insights and making them available for other people and doing that in a you know, structured way that that makes those 
those lessons that they've learned kind of like really easy to apply. You're the blinkest of product management thought leaders then or something along those lines. But would you consider Hustle Badger to be a replacement for some of these types of learning that you're trying to displace? Or do you feel it's more like an addition or an augmentation to some of those other ways that you could learn and something that you can kind of layer on top to help you be the best PM you can be? Yeah, another another great question. I think it's I'm not sure I'd have like a a one answer for this or yeah, yeah it I'd depends, say, right? It depends. It, it depends. It depends. Of course it depends. Like I think yeah, the way I've always thought about Hustle Badger is like, if you had to spend money on one thing, you'd probably spend it on us. Because I think we're gonna be the highest return on investment you're gonna get for your time and your money. And then if you do have more time and more money, go and do a premium course. Because like I say, there's there's some great people out there doing doing really great work. And if you really want to dive deep into a subject, then you're going to get something out of a cohort-based course or a uh, you know even a, an in-person course that, that just can't be replicated in an asynchronous manner yet. Yet being the operative word, but we'll see. I'm looking forward to the roadmap so we can see what stuff's coming up. But you worked at FutureLearn in one of your roles before this as their CPO, or I think VP of Products and then CPO. And for my international listeners, that's a British online education platform. I guess you could say it's analogous to something like Coursera or edX. Maybe you're going to correct me if I've mis- <laughs> misrepresented FutureLearn, but something along those lines. So you've obviously got form in education. You've worked in that space and you've presumably learned a thing or two in your time there. But what was it that made you want to start your own thing in that space rather than maybe go and work for someone else that's doing it themselves? Aside from the approach, I guess, but like, it's still a bit of a commitment to set something up yourself, right? Yeah, I think yeah, I, I've always been obsessed with education since, you know, I was, I was really lucky with my education. I got a fantastic education and I went to, to Oxford. Ooh. My first job, my first job was at McKinsey. And I felt that I learned more in three months at McKinsey than I did in three years at Oxford. And that was a bit of a, you know, I was like, why, why is this? It kind of got me thinking. I was like, how can it be that one of the top universities in the world like, doesn't really teach you what it's like to be in the workforce? Now, maybe I chose the wrong degree or maybe I didn't apply myself <laughs> sufficiently. Like, I'm, I'm not going to say it's all Oxford's fault, right? Like, there's a, there's a degree of like, self-ownership there. But I think since that point, it's got me thinking about is, you know, has education kept up with the way that the workplace has changed? And so I've always been thinking about how we can, we can solve that better. But yeah, you, you mentioned FutureLearn. I think, you know, great, great description there. That was my first really in-depth time working in the ed tech sector. And I loved it. I kind of like felt like that was my opportunity to go and sort of ask all these questions that I've been asking myself for years, but actually maybe get some of the answers and dive a bit deeper and, and see it in a professional context. And a lot of, what I found out there and sort of the hypothesis I was testing, I, I've, I've obviously carried forward into, into Hustle Badger. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. And it's something that I've chatted to other guests about in the past, people working in the ed tech space, the idea that education is in some ways ripe for disruption, right? Because there are so many, for want of a better word, like legacy attitudes or just old ways of doing things. And especially maybe more in the actual public education space where you're actually looking at you know, like government-sponsored education and stuff where they're very averse to change. Whereas I guess with you, you're in a situation where you can kind of 
go out there and you've almost got a blank canvas to some degree. I mean, there's obviously certain norms and ways that people learn, but you've still got a way to actually go out there and try something different and, you know, maybe hit the spot or, you know, maybe iterate towards that. Do you feel it's kind of nice to be in less of a structured kind of existing thing so you can kind of just swing for the fences? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely something very exciting about starting something from scratch. And for me, that's always been an attraction. This is the third business I've I've started from scratch. Neither of the previous two have been particularly successful, I should say. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, third time's a charm. There you go. You know, the, the 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 speed with which you can change things, the speed with which you learn, and seeing something sort of start to make an impression on the world, which you know, would not have existed if you were not there. For me, it's just uh, an incomparable feeling. So yeah, I, I really enjoy it. It's not, it's not all good. There's some stresses as well. But um, <laughs> I think that's definitely the benefit that I keep coming back to. No, absolutely. I think it's always important to sort of see the impact you're having on people as well, right? Like it's really nice to see the results of trying to make people's lives better in some little way. So yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. But do you feel that your experience at FutureLearn and the experience that you had there building those types of education products taught you either things to specifically try to do or maybe even things to avoid in the current approach that you're now championing, like any kind of takeaways that almost informed positively or negatively what you're doing now? Yeah, I think you know, when we were at FutureLearn, there were some, some core hypotheses that we were testing. Things like subscription and personalized learning, which we were experimenting with and testing and they weren't quite right for, for FutureLearn at that time, but I could see the, the value of them and I could see how they'd be like really powerful in a different context or for a different business. So some of those things have been like quite central to how I thought about what Hustle Badger could be going forwards. Well, there you go. You can start to do all the things you wish you could do at the time. But how did you learn how to get good at product management yourself? Like obviously you've been in the game for a while now, so you've learned a lot on the job. I'm sure there's a certain amount of school of hard knocks, but there wasn't a hustle badger before you started it and you started it after you started being a PM. So were there any kind of key ways that you or key resources that you used in the past or approaches that you took to your own self-education that either did or didn't inform what you're doing now, but in any case, uh, kind of ways that you would recommend to kind of up your own game? Yeah, I mean, the first PM role that I had was at a games company in Paris that Vivian Sung, who is CP or CPO at Bumble. She was working there. I vaguely knew her. And she said, hey, come and work for this company. It'll be awesome. And I sort of jumped at that chance both to work in the games industry, work in Paris, but also to, to work with Viv, who'd already done a number of years of PMing at that point and learned from her. And that, that really got me started. And from there, I then went to work for Wuga in, in Berlin, another games company. But they were quite established by the time that I joined them. They were probably 200 people. And you know, that was the time that you know, Facebook games, mobile games were just kind of going crazy. It was you know, Zynga's heyday. And so product management was being practiced by those companies to quite a high level. And at the same time, it was one that an ex-McKinsey consultant like myself could, could sort of slot into fairly easily because... A lot of those games were simulation games. They had very complex economies. And I was used to modeling those kinds of well, modeling businesses because that's what you do as a, as a business analyst, as a, as a strategy consultant. 
so that was kind of my my bridge and my angle in and it got me my toehold and then it was just like working with other people and and developing some more of the kind of the softer side the design side that i'd neglected for a few years (laughs) (laughs) so very much sounds like a school of hard knocks or maybe not always hard but kind of a very much on the job sort of see and observe and, and copy and become so which you know frankly is the kind of way that i like to approach it as well so i'm all for that speaking of becoming if you'll give me a few seconds just to re-shout out to my mentor path a new free mentoring platform where you can sign up to be a mentor mentee or both and try to help you and your peers be the best selves and become the best product managers they can be you can check the show notes for more details all right back to the interview one of the things that you learned or that you said that you learned in your career and we chatted about before this and something you're particularly passionate about is the idea that product managers and product teams need to learn how to execute fast. Now, we can speak about what fast means in a minute, but however fast fast is, why do you think it's so important to execute fast? I think it's really important to execute fast because all things being equal, executing fast means delivering more impact. You get more shots on goal. It's faster learning and it's faster the course correct. And I think sometimes product managers get a bit hung up. They're like, oh, well, you know, if we're, if we're shipping just really fast, we're not really thinking about what we're doing. And actually, I think that's kind of the wrong way to think about it because the faster you're shipping, the more that you're learning, the, the faster you're going to understand what you should be doing. And there's always an element of uncertainty to, to what you're doing. So it's better to embrace that uncertainty, get something out in the world, see how people react to it, and then you know, adapt and course correct from that point. So, so far, so lean startup in a way, like that's not a completely controversial opinion, you know, test and learn and validate your learning and all of that good stuff. But I've certainly worked in some places in the past where maybe there was almost maybe an appetite for things to slow down even from the customer side like they didn't want things too fast like we were working with banks or we were working with big companies big enterprises that they kind of wanted stability or like working with apis and people don't want their apis changed all the time do you think it's possible to be too fast yeah i mean i think i think you're right like there are definitely customer groups where they're not going to appreciate it if their api structure (laughs) is changing every week for sure like one of their their core needs as a user right is going to be stability so then you're going to have to think about well, what are the other user needs that you're trying to serve while still respecting that need that they have for continuity and stability and business security and so on? So yeah, I think I agree with that. And this idea that it's about being fast or as fast as is appropriate for the circumstances that you're in. And this is something where maybe we start to clash a little bit with the agile fundamentalists out there that are sitting there saying that you need to do your thousand releases a day and all of that stuff like you know just like amazon and like yeah that's cool and all but again you've got to kind of adapt it to your own circumstances but in your opinion then i mean let's define fast what does fast actually mean to you and i guess by extension what's the fastest you've ever been like what's the fastest you've ever managed to execute on a sustained basis great question i think i think it's really difficult to know what fast means and that's going to mean different things for it depends right different businesses right and what does your tech stack look like and what is the maturity of the product because a you know, literal day one, it's the first day you've sat down at your computer startup is going to build things at a different speed to someone working in an incumbent business that's been there for 20 years in a regulated industry. For me, 
you know, I've had the, I'd say like the, the privilege to work at Rocket Internet at its heyday. And Rocket Internet, yeah, this was back in 2016, 2017, had a standard goal of launching a new business in 100 days. And this is before you've got things like Shopify and platforms like this to, to kind of like set up new businesses. And I set up a business in 28 days. Oh, there you go. And that's from meeting the engineers that were going to work on it to like being live for customers and taking bookings. So that felt fast. And yeah, we were talking about how customers were going to get the emails confirming the order they'd made. And the engineer told me it was going to take three weeks to build the email system. I was like, that's not going to work. We're going to launch next week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, typical product overreach. There you go. Yeah. So, you know, that, that, I mean, it was great for understanding if you have to work to very, very short timelines and if you really want to move quickly, like what kinds of trade offs and what kinds of hacks and workarounds can you, can you make to go at that speed? Because there's, there's always trade offs, right? And I never look at it as like, this speed is just as fast as we can go. And oh, if we tried a bit harder, we could go faster. That, that's never the case. You're always <laughs> trading something. And it's just a question of what you're willing to trade and whether it's worth it. Yeah, it reminds me of the episode of The Simpsons where Homer was sent or he moved away to some managed community to manage some supervillain's nuclear power plant. And he went, I don't know if you've seen the episode, but he kind of walks in and he's told to motivate the team. And he's like, well, are you working? And they're like, yes, yes, sir, Mr. Simpson. Yes, we are. And then he's like, could you work a little bit harder? Oh, sure thing. And they start typing faster. It's not, it doesn't normally work. And there's that whole mythical man month thing going on as well. You know, like you can't just make people work faster. You've got to try and be more efficient or try and you know handle scope and all those things. But some people might think, hang on a minute. Whenever I've been told to execute fast in the past, it's always been from the founders or the sales team saying, we've got to release stuff. We've just got to get stuff out. We've got to be seen to be being innovative and they start to pull the feature factory alarm bell because they start to think they're just being forced to just push stuff through at a breakneck speed and i know you touched on it a little bit about some of the things that you might want to think about but how can we ensure put maybe guardrails around the fact that whilst we do want to deliver fast that we're not delivering any old nonsense or just basically pushing stuff out for the sake of it well firstly i mean let's let's look at like why do founders ask those questions because founders and CEOs always want to go faster right and <laughs> and i and i agree like i've seen that so many times where the people at the top are like yeah but we should just be going a bit quicker shouldn't we it just, it just feels a bit slow and usually what they're reacting that way to is they're not getting enough transparency from the product teams about the complexity of the challenges that they are facing and the trade-offs that the product teams are making because maybe the CEO is super happy for things not to be 100% scalable or 100% you know, secure for a limited period whilst we test something. What they really just want to see is how does it perform in the market. But that's a decision that you can kind of expose to the CEO and let them make. You don't need to make it yourself. And when you start doing that, you start getting a lot more buy-in from CEOs. And CEOs tend to slow down a bit because actually they realize that you are making some quite sensible trade-offs about risk. And maybe they don't want to be GDPR in compliance uh, for their <laughs> next feature or, or whatever it is, right? So I think that's kind of the core of it is like, can you be really transparent about what is driving the timelines and, and give options that allow people to change those timelines for different things that you can trade off or whether that's completeness of the feature set or 
stability, security, like things that you might consider as an engineering team to be kind of absolute, but actually a CEO who's managing like lots of different risks at a macro level might be willing to to kind of flex to some degree. Yeah, I think one of the key phrases that you called out there was this kind of for the time being like you know we'll make it not scalable for now or we'll make it not quite perfect for now and you know that's something which sometimes rings alarm bells for people especially when they've been in situations before where they never got to go back and finish <laughs> and finish the job right they they kind of just had to move on to the next thing and the next thing and then what happens or what can happen is that you end up in two years time with a complete hodgepodge of stuff because you never went back to maybe mitigate some of those risks so i guess uh, there is a danger for that but i guess that's the job of the product team to keep on top of that right yeah 100 percent. and i think that that's so important like if you're asking teams really to move quickly then you can go faster sometimes by incurring a little bit of technical debt and you have to give them the time to catch that up otherwise that is going to accumulate over time and get you to a position where you're slowed down whether you like it or not so what are some of the other barriers that you've seen that prevent teams i mean let's not just pick on the product managers but like the entire product development teams the trios or just organizations in general like some of the barriers that maybe stop people from moving as fast as they could so i think there's two things in particular that i see occurring a lot and one is a lack of focus so it's very common for product teams to be dealing with not only their own roadmaps but incoming bug requests incoming requests from other teams. And that can really reduce the amount of time that they've got to to make progress on their strategic priorities. So if you don't have that kind of real laser focus on getting one thing done, then it's very easy for you to be distracted, find your, your focus diffused and make very little progress against anything. And the second thing I'd say is that it's not enough to know the direction you want to go in you've actually got to understand how you're going to get there. So you have to have some fundamental insights onto how are you going to solve the problems that users have that allow you to get to the business outcomes that you want. So you need to know what problems do our users have and what are the sorts of things that we can do to solve those problems. Again, otherwise, you're you're just sort of shooting in the dark and your chances of making any meaningful progress towards the business objectives that you set yourself is, is negligible. Never happens. But sometimes the problems that can cause this to you know to be a problem can be a little bit outside the PM's or traditionally the PM's remit and almost permeate the entire culture of the company. Like the engineering team, they just want to work in a certain way. They don't believe in certain types of building software or they've had bad experiences in the past and never again. Or there's an aversion to showing MVPs to customers because our customers are too high value or Everything has to be a big bang release because we need to kind of line it up with marketing. And like you start to lose some of that ability to do some of that fast iteration and getting stuff out and testing and learning. And that's, you know, that does happen. But I think it's fair to say that not all PMs are directly responsible for all of the things that they'd have to do to fix some of those cultural problems within a company. Maybe they just have to work via influence, try and nudge people in the right direction with data, evidence, principles, whatever it is that they can use. But when it comes to nudging people in the right direction and trying to make some of the changes maybe that are outside of the product team that are needed to execute more quickly, what are some of the levers that PMs can pull or some of the approaches that they can use to try and sort of unblock some of those things? 
I think what's really important is to understand your stakeholders really well, firstly. So you've got to get beyond understanding the features that they want and really dig into why do they want those features. And once you start understanding why they want those features, you start understanding their worldview, then you're going to be able to have a much better, more collaborative strategy that involves both product and non-product initiatives. And and those can then work in, in concert. I think a second thing that makes a big difference is really understanding who has decision rights and who's accountable for different things. So as a product manager, you should usually assume that you are the person that is accountable for things going on because that, yeah, that is your role to make things happen. And you should attack ambiguity. If, that, if, if people don't seem to be responding to you acting as the accountable person, then just directly ask them, hey, is this something that you think that you should be taking care of? Again, once you, once you do that, then it's much easier to go faster. I mean, the ambiguity of ownership is such a killer to, to velocity because everyone spends so much time dancing around trying to figure out who should be doing what, who's got the final call, does this need to be consensus-based? And actually just to have one person who says, hey, I've heard all the different points of view and we're going to go for this option, it just cuts through so much, so much stuff. And the final thing I'd say is yeah, make sure you've got regular check-ins. Because I see a lot of teams start to drift when they stop having regular progress check-ins about where they've got to and where are the other teams that they rely on, where have they got to. And when you have those, those progress meetings, they don't need to be long. They don't need to be exciting. But just having them and having them publicly means that you're talking about what is important on a regular basis. And that, that keeps important things front of mind for people. And that means that they spend time working on what's important. I think retros could be such a powerful tool as well. You know, this is not a, a problem for product managers alone, right? This is a this is a team sport. This is something where where product managers really need to coordinate a, a team response. They need to speak to their team leads. They need to speak to their designers. I really have a very open conversation about how can we go faster. And that's really what what retros are for, in my opinion. There's there's a time and there's a place for celebrating people. And that's that's important. But more than anything, your retro should be about asking the team, honestly, how can we do more in the next cycle with the same number of people, with the same objectives? How do we do more? How do we go faster? What what is stopping us now and recognizing those obstacles so that you can tackle them? No, absolutely. I think that idea of almost relentless improvement, I mean, on the one hand, absolutely agree. On the other hand, I guess it could also feel a little demoralizing. I guess we do have to have some level of that kind of cheering about what we just shipped as well, right? Because otherwise people start to feel again that they're just in this kind of constant march into the future and never getting to stop to take a breath. So trying to get that balance right, I guess, is really important. But on the understanding that you might not want to give away too many juicy details or trade secrets, are there any examples from your career where you've maybe executed really fast or as as fast as you could, made a big splash and that you almost put it down to the speed that you executed as well as what you executed. Yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of what we achieved at, at FutureLearn when I arrived there. And I think within two weeks of me joining, then yeah, the company as a, as a whole kind of decided that it wanted to launch a, a new business model and a new learning model combined. And previously, when we'd done that sort of project, it had taken about 18 months. And Understanding the work that was involved and looking at the, the scale of the teams, 
yeah, and, and obviously in conversation with the other the other kind of you know, technical leader and engineer and design leader as well, we set ourselves a goal of delivering it by Christmas, which was four and a half months later. So we set ourselves this incredibly ambitious goal of moving four times faster than we historically had. And then we put in place the, the systems and some of these tactics that I've been talking about, you know, very clear lines of, of accountability, regular check-ins, radical focus on, on that particular goal of getting that live. And what was really nice was that when we came to towards Christmas, everyone was thinking, you know, about to head off for the holidays. We went and asked the teams, and we had five teams working on concert on this, whether we should wait until January the 1st, which was our agreed launch date to release, or whether we should do that before the holidays, before everyone went away. And the teams voted on that, and we gave them the say on that, and they voted to launch before Christmas. So we not only went really fast, but we also ended up releasing ahead of schedule and in a very low-stress way that the, the teams controlled, you know, despite the fact that they hadn't been the ones setting the original deadline. And then yeah, outcome-wise, it was important to go that quickly because we'd essentially reached a point where we were becoming convinced that subscription was the way forwards. And to test that, we needed to get a subscription product to market. And I think within you know, just a few months, we had 25% of our revenue coming through subscription channels. And that, that, that was like a huge proof point of the hypothesis that we'd had. Oh, there you go. Although that does kind of put no deploy Fridays into context when it's almost like no deploy Christmas is the ultimate no deploy Friday, right? And what's your position on no deploy Fridays? I mean, it's been in the socials a little bit recently, the kind of the pros and cons of being able to just release code whenever you want. You shouldn't be afraid of deploying anything on a Friday. It should be just the same as any other day. And then other people are like, well, you know, you could wait a couple of days to get it out on Monday so that everyone's in the office. Like, where do you stand on that? I mean, I think I stand on that in the same way I, I, I acted at Futurele. Like, Speak to the teams. See what do they think. What are the risks that you're you're trying to avoid by not releasing on Fridays? Because it's no one its interest for things to break over the weekend. Like you don't want that as a leader. You don't want that as a team member, right? So if the teams are happy to release on Fridays, and I trust them to release, and if they don't feel comfortable with that, then as a leader, I think I could be happy that waiting till Monday is not a big deal. So actionable advice time. We've got a PM listening to this, maybe stuck in a slow-moving organization, maybe feeling they're not getting anything done, maybe stuck in analysis paralysis or stuck behind whatever it is that's slowing them down, like an you know, organizational lorry in front of them going up a hill on a motorway or a highway for my international listeners. And they want to hit the accelerator or the gas pedal, and they want to start going faster. And we've talked about some of the big picture things you could do, but like, what's one concrete little step that they could do, not today because it's Friday, on Monday, to start going up through the gears? So I'd say for one really tactical piece of advice would be to start tracking how your team is spending their time. What percentage of time are you actually spending on strategic planned work versus on everything else? Everything else, like what are you spending on ad hoc requests from other teams, bugs that come up, updating the tech stack, you know, you're updating the, the modules you're running, all of that other stuff. And see how much time you're really giving yourself to act on the things that you think matter. Because for a lot of teams, you'll probably find that's less than 50%. And then obviously, if you're spending less than half your time on the stuff that you think is the most important, then you're probably not going as fast as you want to be. Well, there you go. Excellent advice. And I'm sure that there's going to be people 
listening to this, getting their Go Faster stripes on and their aerodynamic helmets and all of the good stuff that they need to do to make sure that they're streamlined as much as possible. But where can people find you after this if they want to chat about Hustle Badger or find out, generally speaking, how to go faster or maybe even see if they can get the inside track on a good deal on a Christmas tree? Yeah, well, Hustle Badger is the obvious place to find me at hustlebadger.com or LinkedIn is fairly easy to find me. Ever since there was a president with my name, then uh, yeah, I tend to turn up in search results. That's SEO for you. Well, I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes anyway, and hopefully you'll get a few people speeding in your direction. Well, that's been a great chat. So obviously, really appreciate you spending some of your time to help us understand how we might all move a bit faster and maybe even teach ourselves a few things along the way. Obviously, you and I stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much. Great to come along. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.